Hey, Karen. What's up? Hey, I was just thinking because you were talking um, on our vacation last week about how you were using Just Right Readers with your daughter. Yes, I even brought a stack with me in uh, to Mexico. Did. You did. Yep, she read every day. I've been loving. So there's obviously a big correlation in the science of reading between reading words, writing words, spelling words, encoding, decoding, all yeah. of that. Yeah. And um, one of the things I've been noticing since we've really been focusing on using decodables at home is that her spelling and connection to writing has really grown because the decodables are so predictable. They study the same patterns that we are able to say, pull a couple words and say, can you spell it? Mm -hmm. And she's able to do that. That's genius. And we've also been taking, I've been pulling one of the sentences and having her write it. Um, But because the sentences are so like, 80% 80% are decodable words mm-hmm. and they're, they're very much not based on picture cues. She's able to pretty much write the sentence, um, by just listening after learning the spelling patterns. And it's been incredible. Yay. That's a really smart way to use those. I'll have to pull those out for my kids too. It's wonderful. I love it. Love it. Those decodables from just right readers are literally perfection. They really are. And we really try to make sure that we only partner with brands um, that we believe and, in. Yeah. That we believe in. So if you haven't already, you can get your sample at justrightreader.com or you can talk to the team there about your needs for your Please school do. or your classroom. Super affordable, and they go along with any type of curriculum. And the cool thing is, is they're color coded. Um, and so my daughter is able to be like, "Mom, I'm done with orange," oh, which is great. She's so like, like ready to graduate. Uh huh. Yep. So she can tell when the when the levels get too easy, and they're not leveled readers, but she can tell when she's getting more fluent. Because they're also predictable. So it's worth your time. Invest. Worth your time. Please get a sample and tell them that the Modern Principal sent you. Bye. Hey, hey, Karen. What up? Hey, boo. I'm trying to bring my energy. You've got to get your energy. But <sighs> we were talking as we were planning. You were telling me a story. And I told you to stop telling me the story because I wanted to laugh. Oh, yeah. She does this a lot. I'll be telling her a story. And she's like, no, save it for the pod. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. My life is not a moment of... <laughs> To be recorded live. And I, I want the listeners a to series hear, of moments. I want the listeners to hear my my true reaction. It's literally like if it didn't happen on the pod, did it really it happen? It didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were telling my me. friend sent me a TikTok about this little girl who loves candy corn. Candy corn is one of my obsessions. I only allow myself to indulge in the month of October. Like candy corn is closed for me now. It is a short window of 30 days. Yeah. I allow it and I indulge it and now it's over. Probably was, makes the it even more like special. There were several dinners of candy corn alone <laughs> in the month of October and it was fantastic. So anyways, the girl was talking about how on the TikTok, what she had a funny voice too. She was like, I'm tired of these people saying it tastes like wax. <laughs> Why? How do you know what wax tastes like? And I was like, preach it. And then my friend pointed out that I have a long history of loving wax. <laughs> Christy didn't know what that I didn't means. know what that meant. It was an inside joke. I was not on the inside of. So when I was in third grade, I had a boyfriend. His name was Malcolm Lockerbie. Oh, well, we're just shouting out first and last name. I don't know where he is now. I hope he's doing okay. Maybe it was more like fourth or fifth grade. I don't remember. Anyways, for Valentine's Day, he gave me these two little hearts in a package. Chocolates. Yeah, one was pink and one was white. And I was like, oh, strawberry and vanilla. So I had eaten the strawberry one and started on the... (laughs) When someone informed me that those were in fact soaps. (laughs) I had eaten one and a half before recognizing. You didn't even recognize that somebody else did for you. Yep. 
someone was like, I think Malcolm probably was like, hey, girl, <laughs> hey, girlfriend of mine who's clearly brilliant and intelligent as an <laughs> eight-year-old, that is soap. So, uh, ah, so how I don't know if that's a great <laughs> testament of candy corn then, because clearly I can eat so, yeah, soap like, and not know it. Yeah, I don't know that your critique of, of candy my corn is accurate. My taste buds might not be um, elite. Yeah, that's but they, sure. <laughs> they are, they are non-discriminatory. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Malcolm Lockerbie. Oh, that's rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should Google where he, what he's up to now. I wonder if he's still like giving soaps to his girlfriend. And now he, he could potentially be having all of our listeners also Googling him. <laughs> oh, gosh, don't. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, uh, <laughs> he was, it was sweet. It was a That's lovely Valentine's gift. Very and I don't know how much longer our relationship lasted after that. I'm guessing five minutes. Yeah, I feel like that yeah, would be a, might have, that deal might have been a deal breaker. <laughs> oh, she just eats anything I give her. Cool. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So we need to get into our scenario. Uh-huh. Um, and this week it comes from... <laughs> that was the same year I did a science project on M&M's. Clearly, I love fruit. <laughs> I did like what do colors melt quicker than others? I so vividly remember that. And the outcome? I don't remember that. I ate oh, a lot of that. Remember the, I remember that, that I got to go through yeah. a lot of packages of MMs in the name of science. I got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this week our scenario says students are in crisis all over the place in our building. I feel like we are just putting out fires with student behaviors and not making forward progress. How do we stop the momentum and get ahead of the crisis? Needing advice. Callie from Cali. <laughs> I wrote that one. I know. I didn't write the scenario, but I wrote Callie from Cali. You guys coming up with the names is our favorite it's, part. It's so fun. We usually don't even know what state our listeners are from. So literally we just make that. We just make it. But you it know, a real scenario. We get a ton, a ton, a ton of DMs about behaviors and specifically like the harder to work with behaviors that mm-hmm. take like not just the disrespect, um, right, we, get, we, right. we get that too, Usually but a physical, um, and emotional outbursts that yeah. are not just like a 15 minute situation. Yep. And then as the leader, that's taking a big hunk of your day. And so then how are you yeah. working on the rest of your tasks? Your job. Yeah. This is a big part. And I think it's a big part of what is burning out principles. Oh yeah. Especially I, I would say maybe more elementary. Um, but I think that, nah, I don't know. My husband in middle school, like experiencing a lot of them. And it's just like a different, it's just type different of kind of crisis. Outburst. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so. different. And students walking away and that kind of stuff. I think it's just, it just looks different, but I think it's every level. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk through some of that scala. Okay. Well, you know, we could go on for days and weeks yes. and months about this topic. Yes. So and I think we, and I want everybody to know too, we are aware that there is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of research yes. out there and a lot of professionals in terms of, you know, human behavior. And yes. just, we are not necessarily the experts in human behavior, Oh God, no. but we're just kind of talking about how we have applied our understanding of yes. it to schools. And for this particular topic, um, for scholar, we're just going to talk more about Jeffrey Colvin's work. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know anything about him, it's Jeffrey with a G E mm-hmm. Joffrey, Joffrey Colvin. Um, that would be something I would Google, um, because that is something that has helped me a lot understand kind of that crisis. But one of the things that I thought was interesting, I mean, this wasn't connected with his work, but it was just a, something I read recently is that we have really well-organized systems within our schools that function with efficiency under normal conditions, but it's really easy for us as principals to get frustrated and discouraged when our systems start to 
quote, crumble when there's crisis. And that's not a reflection of your systems. It's just a cue that you didn't design them for the crisis. You designed them for day-to-day functioning. I just, I just wish I had had that. Do you need an amen for that? I do. And I wish I had had thought through that lens Mm -hmm. when I was a principal, because that you, yeah, you ha- you create the system for normal times. Not you create it for normalcy. Crisis. And that doesn't mean that your system is flawed and you need to redo it. It just is more thinking that you need a separate system for crisis to be implemented during a crisis. Oh, so genius. Okay. So give yourself that grace um, and know that you do need to keep your systems for normalcy, but you also need to work with a specific team. It doesn't even need to always be your whole building. And I think that's when principals get a little off is that you think your whole building has to change right? for five, six, seven, eight students, as opposed to you just need a separate system. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Involving those people who are working with those students. So today when we're talking about a student crisis, we're really kind of talking about situations that are posing potential threats to students themselves or that student towards another student um, or staff's mental and physical well-being, correct? Yep. yep. And, okay. and I wanted to put the mental in there as well um, because staff can have some emotional reactions and we'll talk a little bit about that secondhand trauma, Yeah. but that is something you have to think about that if a student's having a physical reaction isolated from every other part of the building, the staff working with that student are likely having a mental yeah. Um, yeah. crisis working with that student. Yeah, and so just think through all of those pieces. Yeah. So Jeffrey Colvin's work is a really good model. He walks through kind of like on a X, Y axis, intensity and time. There's like seven different phases of the escalation cycle. And he calls it essentially um, the acting out cycle. The acting out cycle. And and you'll notice that when you Google it and we talk through it, you'll recognize this acting out cycle is not just for kids having a tantrum. No, like it's even adults. And yes, (laughs) those of us who are having an acting out issue, because we've all had them. Right. (laughs) Right. So, so there's seven phases. It starts with calm, then goes to trigger, agitation, acceleration, peak, de-escalation, and recovery. And one of the flaws when you first start working with this is I notice people focus straight into trigger, number two, working through peak, and then kind of ignore calm and recovery. Yep. And you expect that de-escalation to be fast and... And really, when you're looking at this model, de-escalation is like half of the the cycle. Yes. And it can take a lot of time, but also ignoring the calm and the recovery Mm -hmm. is really ignoring how to change the behavior Uh because change in behavior comes from the things you put in um, when students are calm and the processing and like kind of restorative practices you put in during recovery. Yes. And so we love, I love that. What you said, that the things that change behavior happen when the child is calm and recovering and recovering. And so if you are trying to change behavior during a trigger and agitation, that is not going to help the child actually change behavior for the right. long term. And even sometimes we try to process during de-escalation mm-hmm. and then we see another peak pop and yep. it's like, you didn't let that de-escalation go all the way down. Yep. 
So there's just a lot of really good work to be done around this cycle. I would really advise you and your crisis team, if you don't have a crisis team, we'll talk a little bit about that, but to dive into Colvin's work. Um, and really, if you have students that get explosive physically, mm -hmm. you need to be working with his work because there's just a lot of learning to be done around the acting out cycle. It'll be, it'll be enlightening for sure if you haven't done anything with but, it. But one of the things that my team did a lot of work around was we embedded this into our behavior plans um, with students who were physical. So, or even students that were very emotionally yeah. threatening, yeah. we would, um, build this cycle specifically into their actual That's plan. That's yep. super smart. And we would talk about with each one of these one through seven, what were the adult responses and what are the student actions that we see? So during calm, what are the things we typically see the student doing and what are the responses all of the adults need to be doing? Trigger, what do we see the student doing? What does the adult need to be doing? Agitation, so on and so forth. That's genius. And really talking through, the key is that adult piece. So I know the kid is moving to acceleration when this happens, mm -hmm. when maybe we're starting to kick doors or yep. open slam yep. doors back and forth. And so then my response or anyone's response should look like planned ignoring, should look like calming music, should look like whatever ABC. That is, yeah. Right. And then how do I know that we've hit the peak? And yep. that's really important to talk through. How do we know that the student is at the peak? And then how do I know that that student is fully de-escalated? That's my recommendation is to kind of work G through that. Yes. Genius, okay. genius, genius. So that's kind of a little bit of scholar. Um, and hopefully you just really, the name Jeffrey Colvin is like embedded into your brain right now and you'll know to research yes. him. So when we think about the systems piece, we both were really um, adamant about having some sort of a crisis intervention team or response team. It doesn't yep. really matter what you Who call was it. Um, it was always me, the counselor. We had like our behavior interventionist, like our focus room, recovery room mm -hmm. teacher. Um, at one point I had a speech pathologist because she was really strong with behavior. Yep. Um, and I think I, that's always great. The, yep. the resources they can bring with language is something oh, we yes. often forget. Yes. Because that can be a real big trigger for kids. Right. And one of the things that people forget is when kids are in crisis, they don't have language. No, their IQ, literally there's research to show it drops 20 to 30 points. And it's very difficult to access any verbal skills yep. you have. Yep. Um, I also, I think one thing to think about too, is that there were times when my team would get really small because of maybe a new staff member came on who wasn't ready to be a part yep. of a crisis team or um, maternity leaves, those right. sorts of things. And right. so um, I would have teachers who were really competent in behavior or maybe teachers who were considering that they wanted to go into admin. Uh -huh. I would have them like CPI trained um, and then we could always like sub out. So have somebody else go into their room to sub if we, they were needed in a crisis yeah, and pull good. them in. Yeah, I would also have some special ed reps um, yes. um, and some, you know, just anyone else in the building, our process coordinator, mm -hmm. anyone else in our building that often that can leave in a moment's notice yes. their space. Yes. Um, the other thing that is really important for your crisis teams is to have frequent, consistent meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and so you determine how many of those you need, um, but to talk through and make sure that everybody's on the same page, because even if you all attended the same like CPI training, for example, people can still interpret how that looks in your building mm -hmm. differently. <laughs> right. Right. The other thing we talk about is having like a building building wide system of requesting support. Yeah. Um, we would have levels in place, level one, two, three, um, or whatever. And here's what I'll say, no matter what you define the levels as you're going to need constant training yes. and reflection around the use of those levels. Yes. So one of the things are, 
we would do that as a whole staff because everyone needed to understand the levels. But then our crisis team would really talk through when we respond to level twos, do we think those are twos or do we think those are threes? When we're getting called to threes, are there certain staff that are not interpreting a three the way we are? Those kind of things. And, and that team, the good thing about it was they could kind of find problems in our building that we could then put in yes. PD of like during lunch, we're getting a lot of level calls. Let's talk through that during, uh, we're getting a lot of level threes at recess. Why? Right. So there was good things like that, that came out of those meetings. And you can define those levels however you want. And it's probably, you know, it's good to define them as a team. I know that at our building, I think your building was similar, Karen, that we kind of developed them around how much disruption, yep. uh, the, the level of disruption. Yeah. So like a level one, you likely weren't like in our building, you weren't calling for a level one or because level one was, they were only disrupting themselves. We didn't have you start calling until level three when they were disrupting more. So like an entire room, we're not responding to redirects. Um, perhaps they walked out without permission. Mm -hmm. And we revised ours. We started with just three levels and then we added in one to differentiate between elopement and crisis because right. those are a little bit they different. different. Um, you don't need five people to respond to an yes. elopement necessarily. So we, it was a work in progress as a staff and it came from those meetings of our crisis team, really having mm -hmm. those conversations. We have in our portal, which is going to be dropping here in a few weeks, check out our Instagram um, to see more about it. But we are going to have in our portal, some examples of levels mm -hmm. and um, how you could define them in your building if that's if that would be helpful to you. Right. We'll also have a sample of a behavior plan that will have mm -hmm. that acting out model yes. as part of the crisis. Um, the other thing is the, one of the things that hurts admin here is that you feel like you have to respond to all the crises, um, but it is something that you have to create a hierarchy in which to respond. Yes. Um, at the beginning, you're probably going to want to respond to more so that you can yes. have those reflective conversations and train as up your a first team. year principal. It's, it's kind of a catch 22, right? Because on one hand, as a first year principal, you need to be putting so much of your time into so many things. Right. But at the same time, you cannot underestimate how valuable it is for you to have to really have in-depth knowledge of all of your students that have that exhibit two or three behaviors right. um, and how your staff also responds. Spons. And then how to like help because behavior is so much philosophy and philosophy like is just the practice looks different um, based on the kid. And so it's really important. The more you can be there, reflect, have conversations yeah. after, the more you know you're training your staff on that same philosophy. Yeah. But it is important to have that hierarchy um, and to sub people out. Like that's something I've noticed when I've, I've gone through buildings and the level I'm in now is that people kind of forget to get creative with mm -hmm. certain things of like, if someone says, I can't, I have kids in my room, but that person's the best person to go have someone else sub that person out yeah, and really make sure that you're using everyone in your building. And we've had to have a lot of conversations with our paras about these are when I need you to drop what you're doing and mm -hmm. respond. And these are when I want you to stick to the assignment you've been given Yeah, because adults don't know when they're supposed to stop what they're doing. Oh yeah. To respond and yeah. whose job it is to respond. And so you really do need to make that clear, make that clear and talk through it. I want you to switch your assignment in moments of crisis to go be a responder. Make sure you're on top of that. Yep. 
Um, make sure you're having a system for the paperwork that you might be required to do if you're not required to do paperwork um, after students are in crisis. Um, you might want to develop some so that yep. you can really start to drill down to your note taking and um, try to learn more about that student and the adults involved. Um, and then you'll also want to make sure too that you have a good system for contacting parents mm -hmm. and contacting the other staff who are a part of it. Um, I think it's really hard as a teacher when you have a kid who probably got up to that agitation level or, you know, they maybe started throwing things and they had, to, the student had to leave because of that. But then as a teacher, I think they deserve to know what was the fallout? What kind of happened after they left the yep. room? <laughs> There's a lot of times that teachers would be like, I haven't seen him in like three hours mm -hmm. because they had the crisis, not in the classroom, which is what we want, but they also need to know kind of what we worked through behind the scenes mm -hmm. with that student because yeah. it is their student. Yeah. The last thing I'll say system-wise this is something I've processed with a lot of principals recently as kind of like coaching. Sometimes you have so many kids that are yes. showing behaviors at the same time. You're not really making an impact on any of them because nope. you're just kind of trying to keep you them all safe. Yeah. So one of the things we talked through um, is just you really need to understand who you have available to help yep. and work with the parents of these students to say, I can't. I can't extinguish this behavior right now. So the plan's going to look a little different. I'm going to put this kid in a shutdown mode for a few days while I focus on another student. Yep. So just know that like we, we kind of use the phrase that because we could not um, properly, like you said, extinguish a behavior for seven kids at once. We just didn't have the staff to do that. Right. And so maybe for your top two, you're going to hold them accountable to whatever you, your team has decided they need to be doing to extinguish the behavior. Because you right. know, when you hold kids accountable, sometimes that escalates. Right. And that's okay because that's the only way to extinguish it. But that might mean for those other five kids, you're not necessarily placating but you are purposefully not escalating them because you don't have the staffing to do it. You don't it. have the staffing. And so, so their plan might look a little different for a few days while mm -hmm. you're really making some groundwork with some other students. And it's not saying you're prioritizing one kid over another. You're just kind of scripting out when yeah. you're going to start extinguishing those behaviors. Yeah. And you just really have to be intentional about that because there will be an extinguished burst Yep. Um, where sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Almost always. And so... <laughs> I mean, that happens with your own kids too. When you yep. put boundaries in, yep. <laughs> we just experienced that together in Mexico. You got through that. First. We extinguished those bursts. <laughs> okay. Soul side. We, we, as always are taking a lot of time on this because it's something that's really hard, but, um, to cover in a 15 minute pod. But one of the things that I think gets overlooked often in crisis is that time to reflect. Mm -hmm. And it is so important to yes. schedule a time in with staff after every crisis event they experience with a student. And that's for multiple reasons. One is to really work through um, that like secondary trauma that the adults experienced. Mm -hmm. And the other is to make sure that we're planning to prevent this from happening yep. again. And if you leave out this step, because I know that I am guilty of, of leaving out this step on a day, maybe when you had three, five kids. Or you had to leave the building and you had to come back or whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, and every time you don't do this step is that's, that's when morale starts to dip. Like people just want to know that you have a plan. And even if you don't know every step of the plan, they want to know that you are there for them, that you care, that you're there to listen and that we're going to work through this together. And that you're not just as the principal, like, 
yeah, figure it out. Right. <laughs> right. And, and the other piece that we really didn't hit on as hard, but is there is that partnerships with parents are so important. Yep. Um, because sometimes parents don't see what you see at school. And so it is important it's completely to, different demands, completely different environments. So it is important to bring them in. I've brought parents in when kids are in crisis. I've called them and said, can you come in and help me work through this? Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't want a student to feel, I don't want to give them more trauma at school. Right. And if their parent can get through to them quicker than me, of course, I'm going to bring their parent. Yeah. In. Sometimes they can't come in and sometimes okay. they, yeah. right. So you just really need to make sure you're talking through and the parent knows that you're, you guys are on the same team and you're getting their input during these kind of big behaviors. So that way you guys can kind of talk through it together. I think one of the biggest things that has always stuck out to me whenever I like people ask for advice on this type of a thing is that you have to have a lead, um, in the crisis moment. Um, and I think there is nothing worse and it drives me crazy when I see other people like working with a student in crisis and like so many people are talking to the Mm -hmm. kid. (laughs) Um, we always made sure, Hey, I'm the lead. I'm going to be doing the talking and I will tap out if I need to tap out and then you can start talking and spoiler alert. There shouldn't be any talking period. Yes. So true. (laughs) So true. But we'll get to that in another pot. Yeah. And you kind of put that too, as one of the things as well, like have signals and grace, like when Mm -hmm. adults do need to sub out, Mm -hmm. um, and you've reached your level of patience being, yes, (laughs) you need you. And often as principals, we take the lead and staff don't feel comfortable directing us. Mm -hmm. So you need to have someone on your team that will, um, because you need to be tapped out sometimes and you need to coach them on being able to give you direction and you to say, Hey, when you're the lead, I am okay taking the back seat and I will listen to you. Right. And I, like, I had my relationship with my counselor. She was like my, my work wife. And she would like, look me in the eyes and say, you need to go take a break. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, gotcha. Like she could do that with me. Cause I asked her to, and you just have to, you have to find someone on your team that will look at you and say like, you've been doing this for a while. Get out. You're yeah. not doing that. You're not doing anyone any favors. Yep. And you need to be humble enough to know that you can also do that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because <laughs> that can be a, it's hard for your pride sometimes. So this is like a really big topic. It's an emotional topic. Um, the best part is that communication, communicating with parents, communicating with your staff, and then communicating with the student. Yep. That's that part of recovery that's so important is that restorative conversation. Uh, reconnecting. Uh, reconnecting, um, restorative back to all of the people in the environment that have been harmed. Um, it's just really important to have. Yep. Um, all right. From the desk of the modern principal. So this kind of goes with what I was just saying. It's when we start working together, that the real healing takes place. And don't forget that together includes everyone, parents, everyone. Thank you to David Hume for that quote. Oh, David. Okay. So thanks for stopping by for this hour long presentation. Thanks for for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to our pod to receive them as soon as they drop. Follow us on Instagram at the modern principal. You can find more at themodernprincipal.com. And don't forget to check out Just Right Reader. Bye.